This is part two in a series that I've entitled Echoes of Hope. It's a series that will take us up till Christmas. Um, and this morning, I want to read from Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 5 through 9. Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 5 and reading down through verse 9. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in all the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Let's pray together. God, I pray that you would meet us right where we are. You know us better than we know ourselves. You brought us here this morning, each and every one of us. None of us are here by accident. Every single one of us is here by divine appointment. And that means that you have something very specific to say to each and every one of us. So I pray that you would say it, that you would say it loudly and clearly and compellingly, that you would overpower our unbelief and give us eyes to see Jesus. I pray that we would leave here today feeling relieved, unburdened, I pray that you would inform our minds and enlarge our hearts. We pray with one voice, O oh God, come thou fount of every blessing and tune our hearts and tune our minds to see and to savor your amazing grace. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So I, um, I began this series last week by making a couple of statements regarding the Bible and how we typically read the Bible, how we approach the Bible, how we view the Bible. Whether you are a, a Bible reader or not, my guess is that you have a particular view of the Bible or at least some opinions about what you think the Bible is. And, and at least for me growing up, I often read the Bible as if it were fundamentally about me. I was taught, maybe not explicitly, but at least it was implied that the Bible was fundamentally about us. It was fundamentally about our improvement, our life, our faith, our morality, our faithfulness, our devotion, our commitment. And as a result, I grew up viewing the Bible like it was a heaven-sent self-help manual. That's what I thought it was. We treat it like it's a book of timeless principles that will give us our best life now if we simply apply those principles. In fact, I would go so far as to say that it's possible to read the Bible, study the Bible, even listen to sermons from the Bible while missing the whole point of the Bible. The focus of the Bible, believe it or not, is not our work for God. The focus of the Bible is God's work for us. The Bible is not fundamentally about us at all, even. It's fundamentally about Jesus. In fact, 
Unless we go to the Bible to see Jesus and his work for us, even our devout Bible reading can become fuel for our own narcissistic self-improvement plans. Even our devout Bible reading becomes a place we go for the help we need to conquer today's challenges and take control of our lives. Now, if that sounds remotely familiar to you, even though the words may not seem familiar, that's typically the way, at least in the environment that I grew up in, that's typically the way the Bible is treated. It's, it's the way the Bible is viewed, that we, we go to the Bible and we read primarily about us and how we are to live. It's a, like I said, it's a divinely sent self-help manual. It's a self-help manual from God. But in reality, the Bible tells one story, and it points to one figure. I said last week that everything in the Old Testament predicts God's rescuer, and everything in the New Testament presents God's rescuer. We looked last week at Adam, and specifically Genesis chapter 3, that place where Adam and Eve for themselves decided that they wanted to be independent from God, that they wanted to be their own God, and as a result, they fell, and the entire human race fell in their wake. And I said that even in that mess that we made way back then, God could have left us there. He could have just left us there. He was under no obligation whatsoever to do anything about the problem that we created at all. So he made a promise. God made a promise. Instead of leaving us in the mess that we made, God made this promise that one day the seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the serpent. And I'm certain that Adam and Eve had no idea what he was talking about at that point. It's a very vague, kind of esoteric-like promise. But as we make our way through the Old Testament, we actually see what that promise is all about. That in that promise, God was making a declaration that he would one day send a rescuer to clean up the mess that we made. That he would one day send someone to come and fix the problem that we created, the ultimate problem that we created. And everything in the Old Testament predicts God's rescuer, and then everything in the New Testament presents God's rescuer. In other words, the whole Bible is a picture of who Jesus is and what he's done. And this means, contrary to popular belief, that the Bible is not a book about good people making their way up to God. It's not even a book that gives us instructions on how to get to God. The Bible is a book about God making his way down to sinful people. Story after story in the Bible show us that the so-called heroes in the Bible, those people specifically in the Old Testament that we want to emulate, um, Noah being one, uh, David, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we read all these stories. If you grew up in church or around church, then you're vaguely familiar with some of these stories. And the way these stories were presented to me growing up were that these are the kinds of people we should emulate. These are the kinds of people that we should be like. But story after story in the Bible show us that the so-called heroes in the Bible are not really heroes at all. They fail, they, they fall, they make huge mistakes, they, they get afraid, they're selfish, they're arrogant, they're, they're deceptive, they're egotistical and abusive, they're, they're perverse, they're unreliable. 
God doesn't edit out the bad stuff the way we do. The Bible is one long narrative of God meeting our rebellion with his rescue, our failure with his forgiveness, our guilt with his grace, and our badness with his goodness. Story after story after story, passage after passage after passage illustrates this. And this means that the Bible is not first a recipe book for Christian living. It's first a revelation book of Jesus who is the only answer to our unchristian living. Now, I said this last week, but I find it massively encouraging as I read the Bible that God only comes to broken, guilty, non-heroic people. Because what that means is that he came for me and he comes for you. He loves and uses doubters and deniers and adulterers and murderers and idolaters and failures of every kind. We see that over and over and over in the Bible. So far from... You know, these people being people that we should emulate, um, what we see is God meeting their messes with his mercy time and time and time again as a way of showing us that he meets our badness with his goodness time and time and time again. He loves and uses flawed people because flawed people are all that there are. We talk about that all the time here on Sunday mornings. We show that week after week. But then we get to a passage like Genesis chapter six. And we go, Noah seems to buck this trend a little bit. You know, we're, you just finished saying, Tullian, that God only uses flawed people who fail because flawed people who fail are all that there are, that God only comes to broken down, non-heroic characters. He, he only comes to the unrighteous and to the bad, not the righteous and the good, because there's no such thing. Um, but then we get to Genesis chapter 6, and we read this about Noah, and we're like, now hold on a second. There seems to be at least one exception to this rule. Because these verses themselves say that Noah was a righteous man and Noah walked with God. Noah is often presented as the first character in the Bible worthy of emulation. I mean, Adam, sinner. Eve, big sinner. Cain, massive sinner. I mean, he killed his brother, bad guy. Everyone knows we don't want to be like that guy. But Noah... Finally, finally, a good guy. It took us six chapters to get there, but it's good. Finally, a good guy that we can emulate. According to many Sunday school lessons, Noah is a hero. He's a good guy who did something great. His faith was strong. His devotion to God was unwavering. Now, this is a guy who serves as an incredible example of what we should all strive to be. That's typically... The way this story is told, that's how we typically tell the story, but that's not the story that Genesis 6 actually tells when you look at it a little bit more carefully. You see, the way I, I grew up understanding this story is that um, at this point, everyone in the world was bad except for Noah. He was good. I mean, I just read the verses. It seems to be saying that, right? That everyone's bad except for Noah, He's good. Every Sunday school lesson I ever heard about Noah went something like this. Remember, 
You too can believe what God says, just like Noah. You too can stand up to the wickedness in our world, just like Noah did. Don't be like the bad people who mocked Noah. Be like Noah. He proves you can be a good person even if you're surrounded by evil. Okay, that was generally the moral of the story that was taken away anytime the story of Noah was told. Now, I understand why many would read it this way. After all, I just read verse 9. It says, Noah was a righteous man, and he walked with God. I mean, that's pretty plain, pretty black and white. But here's the thing. We we, we tend to um, develop a radical misunderstanding of God, of Christianity, of us, when we take certain verses or certain passages of the Bible out of their context, And it confuses us, and it sometimes turns things upside down because you can't understand verse 9 properly unless you understand its context. So we have to go back a few verses. So here's what, and I'll read it again, but here's what verses 5 through 8 say, all the verses preceding verse 9. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of every human heart was only evil all the time. That's a very bleak picture that God is painting of humanity at that time. In fact, it goes on to say, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart, God's heart, was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I have created and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, this is where the confusion kicks in. This is all, these are all the verses preceding the flood. Okay, God says, I'm going to destroy this world, and he, in fact, does and almost starts over. But some read this, um, and they make it sound like, you know, God is scouring the earth to find someone, anyone who is righteous. He's desperate to find a good guy. He's looking down at the human race, and he's going, gosh, man, what did I do? Look at these people. They're, my gosh, I, I'm sorry I even made them. And just as God is ready to throw in the towel, he goes, but wait a minute. There's a bright light over there. Who's that? Let me go, let me get a little closer to see who that is. Oh, it's Noah. Gosh, finally, he's, he's a good guy. And then one day, God is searching high and low. He sees Noah. He, he breathes a divine sigh of relief. And he says, okay, th- there's, there's at least one. Hey, but that's not what it says here. Look at all the superlatives in verses 5 through 7. Every inclination, every human heart, only evil all the time. I mean, those, those are some big words. That kind of language doesn't leave a lot of room for exceptions. So the question is, is Noah included in the all and the every? Okay, in those verses. Well, let's look at that a little bit. I had so much fun dissecting this yesterday because if we don't, this is where we get really confused regarding what Christianity is, as I'll get into in a few minutes. 
is we read something like this or we misread something like this or we just assume that this is saying something that it's not saying. And as a result, the consequences are we get Christianity completely backwards. The word favor in verse 8 is the same word translated elsewhere as grace. Okay? So a better translation would be that God graced Noah. Or the eyes that captured Noah were eyes of grace. When it says Noah found favor or Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, where is the grace located? In the eyes of the Lord. So it would be more accurate to say that God graced Noah or the eyes that captured Noah were eyes of grace. In other words, the whole world is bad, including Noah, verses 5 through 7, but God bestowed favor on Noah, verse 8. Okay, so putting it all together, here's the order. Noah is a sinner. He's included in the all, the every, all that stuff, verses 5 through 7. Noah's a sinner. He's no better than anybody else on earth at that time. That's what verses 5 through 7 says. Then God's grace comes to Noah, verse 8. Then, verse 9, Noah is righteous and walks with God. Okay, that order is absolutely crucial. You get that order backwards, you get Christianity all wrong. Seriously. I'll say it again. Noah's a sinner, verses 5 through 7. He's included in the mass of humanity. That's every inclination of every human heart is only evil all the time. That's Noah also. Verse 8, but then after that diagnosis in verse 7, God's grace comes to Noah, verse 8. Then and only then, verse 9, Noah is righteous and walks with God. Now, this order is crucial to our understanding of Christianity because this tells us something very profound. Walking with God doesn't lead to God's favor. God's favor leads to walking with God. It's totally different. Okay, I mean, that, that difference is the difference between slavery and freedom. That difference is the difference between Christianity and religion. That difference is the difference between life and death, really. You see, many people assume that God is in the business of rewarding the rewardable, empowering the powerful, and giving the gold star of blessing to those who prove themselves worthy of it. Okay, that's the way most people think. God helps those who help themselves. Okay, that, that God is my co-pilot. That the reason God is my friend is because I'm friendly. The reason God loves me is because I'm lovable. The reason God is good to me is because I'm good to him. Most people assume that grace is a wage to be earned rather than a gift that is freely given. In fact, much of what is peddled as Christianity these days is that God loves good people, so if we want God's love, we must be good. Now, I can't think of too many preachers or Christian leaders who say it that way, but they imply it. They really imply it. Um, I'm going to call an audible here and read something to you that I wrote, if I can find it. 
Um, <laughs> I got it. I got it. Hold on. Um, hold on a second. This is what I love about small family church. If I need to go to the bathroom, I just take a break and go. No one cares. Um, <laughs> if I need to find something, okay, here. This, this, I wrote this after a conversation I had with, a, with my brother. We were talking about this very thing on the phone. And as soon as I was finished um, with our conversation, I, I wrote this down because it was a thought that was in my head. If I were the devil and I wanted Christians to believe that God's love for them is conditional, I would not lead them to a preacher who blatantly says, God's love is conditional, so you better not screw up. I would be much more subtle than that. I would lead them to a preacher who is constantly saying things like, how's your prayer life? Are you reading your Bible every day? When was the last time you shared your faith with someone? Are you handling your money in a way that glorifies God? and so on and so forth. In other words, I would lead them to a preacher who persistently peppered their minds with diagnostic questions about their spiritual life and their moral performance. In other words, I would subtly get them to think that God's love was conditional, not by telling them outright that God's love is conditional, but I would get them thinking about them their performance, their morality, their behavior, and then imply that God loves good people. So if you want God's love, then you better check these boxes and do the right things, that you better be good. If you, if you, if you want God's blessing, then you better do the right things. Because God's favor towards you, his disposition towards you, his love for you, and his acceptance of you is dependent on what you do or don't do. That's everywhere. Literally, everywhere. Some of you know that to be true. Um, people have used this story for a long time to try and prove that if you want God to do right things for you, you better do right things for him. Okay, I I'm telling you, they've used this story for ages to try to make that point. Sermon after sermon, book after book implies or explicitly states that your faith activates God's faithfulness. That if you keep your faith, God will keep you safe. That God fights for those who fight for him. That anytime you do good for God, you're sowing a seed for God to do good to you. I mean, this stuff is all over the place. But what happens when your faith crumbles? What happens when, when instead of standing firm, you cave, when you let go of God, when you quit trying, when you fail? When you give in again and again and again to that bad habit or that addiction, when you can't seem to not nurture that secret, whatever the case may be, what then? Um, if God's favor is dependent on my faith, I'm screwed, okay? It's that simple, and so are you. I mean, I've said this before, but I wish that I could say, I give my whole heart to Jesus. I can't. 
and either can you. What I can say is that Jesus gave his whole heart for me. That's the gospel. I, I wish that I could say, great is my faithfulness to God. I can't. Either can you. What I can say is, great is God's faithfulness to me. I wish that I could say, I surrender all to Jesus. I can't. You can't either. On your best day, you've never surrendered all to Jesus. On your best day, never. What I can say is that Jesus surrendered all for me. Okay, well, I, I wish that I could say, I do everything for God's glory. I can't. Either can you. What I can say is that Jesus' blood covers all of my efforts to glorify myself. That's the gospel. There's a huge difference, huge difference between those two things, huge. You see, thankfully, this story clearly teaches when you look at it in context and you put the verses in their proper order, the way they were intended to be read and understood, this story clearly teaches that righteousness is not a condition or a cause of grace. Righteousness is produced and preceded by grace. Or, to put it in the words of 1 John, we love him because he first loved us. His love initiates. His is the causing love. In other words, God loves us not because we are good, but because he is good. You see, I, I think there's a, a lot of confusion uh, inside the church today regarding what the gospel is. See, the gospel is not a, a command for us to radically pursue God. There are plenty of passages in the Bible that tell us to radically pursue God, and those passages are intended to expose the fact that even on our best day, we're not radically pursuing God. Okay, it's the law. What does the law do? It exposes. It unmasks us. It shows us how desperately we need Jesus. So the gospel is not a command for us to radically pursue God. The gospel is an announcement of Jesus' radical pursuit of us. Okay, the gospel is not a, a demand to be faithful. It's a declaration of his faithfulness to us. The gospel is not a story of God meeting us halfway. The gospel is not God will love us a lot if we love him a little. The gospel is not good advice. It's not good technique, and it's not good behavior. It is good news. It's news. It's an announcement that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's an announcement. It actually has nothing to do with you. The gospel is good news because it has nothing to do with you. Anything that has to do with me has got bad news entangled all in it. Okay? I mean, you too. I mean, it's the, we are not the good news. I was thinking about this last night. So many passages that I used to read when I was younger or that were taught to me when I was younger in the New Testament and specifically Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Gospels 
were all intended to show me Jesus as an example, an example to follow, you know? We've looked at a bunch of these passages here uh, over the last year or so, but they were sort of uh, delivered to me, these, these messages, these passages were delivered to me as if the primary role of Jesus is to serve as an example, an example for how we should live, and that the Christian life is all about following Jesus' example. Okay, I mean, is that not true? Is that pretty much not what you grew up thinking? Okay, that that's what Christianity is. Um, but then I was thinking about this. I've thought about this before, but I was thinking about it again last night. Jesus as my example is not good news. Okay? Think about what he did. And think about how successful you have been in following his example. I mean, think about it. I mean, if, if, if Jesus' primary role in coming to earth was to serve as an example of how we should live, then we are all categorical failures. And that is the primary reason that Jesus displays an example before us, is not to show us how to live, but to show us how much not like him we are and how much we need him to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. The Christian faith is not Jesus is your example. Christian faith is Jesus is our substitute. He came and did for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. He came to be for us what we could never be for ourselves. See, the gospel is the good news announcing Jesus' unfailing devotion to us despite our failing devotion to him. So simply put, the gospel is the good news that the bad get the best, the worst inherit the wealth, the slave becomes a son, the whore becomes a bride. All of the various pictures that the Bible uses to describe what the gospel is. So this is not primarily a story about how to be like Noah. Be good like Noah, and if you're good like Noah, God might save you from all the nastiness around you. Um, you know, if, if you're good like Noah and you stand out amongst the bad things, God might see you too and then bless you the way he clearly blessed Noah. That's not the story. Okay, this is a story about the grace of God the goodness of God coming to a bad guy and bestowing favor on him, not because he deserved it, but because he needed it. You see, this, this story so beautifully points us ahead to the ultimate place where God's best met us at our worst. I mean, that's what's going on here. I mean, the way, the way Genesis 6 describes humanity at that time, I mean, it's bad news. I mean, think about it. Every inclination of every human heart was only evil all the time. I mean, that's massive. That, that's, that's a, that is a massive diagnosis of badness. And Noah's a part of that. And God's grace meets Noah. God gives Noah his best while Noah is at his worst. And that's such a beautiful picture of the ultimate place where God's best met us at our worst, just like God would have been totally justified had he washed his hands of Noah, he would be totally justified if he washed his hands of us too. But, as I said in the Jonah series, that's the surprise of grace. 
Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. Grace is love for you that has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with the giver, not the receiver. What God did with Noah, he does with us. He comes to us in the person of Jesus, not because we deserved it, but because we didn't deserve it. See, this story gets turned around so that God's grace comes to Noah because he's proved himself worthy of it. That the reason God bestows favor on Noah is because of all the bad people in this world, he's good and he's standing firm. And God rewards him with grace. God rewards Jonah's goodness with favor. Well, if you believe that, you don't believe in Christianity. I mean, it's just that's not Christianity. No matter which way you slice it. He comes to us, and the gospel tells us this so clearly, that God comes to us in the person of Jesus, not because we deserved it, but because we didn't deserve it. That beautiful passage in John chapter 1, that Christmas passage which speaks of the incarnation of Jesus, where John says, and he came into his own, and his own, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. In other words, he... God and the person of Jesus came to us not because we were begging for him, but because we were rebelling against him. It was our sin. It was our badness. It was our need that summoned God to us. We get that totally backwards. Well, if, if God's going to be good to me, then I better clean myself up and present myself as, as uh, you know, good and clean. I don't know if you grew up like this, if you went to church, but you know, there was all, it was always a little strange to me that church seemed to be the place where you could go and, you know, it's, at least it should have been the place where you could go and be yourself. You stand naked before God, clothed only in the righteousness of Christ. It's a place where you could go and tell the truth about yourself and be real. Out there, it's so hard to tell the truth about yourself because people reject you. But in here, knowing that God won't reject you, you can tell the truth about yourself. In our particular case, with our church, it's why we paint the doors red so that we are reminded every time we walk in here, that we are given access into the very presence of God and God's delight over us solely because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Full access, okay? And so I grew up assuming that's what church... So I always got a little confused about why we always had to get dressed up, you know? Now, I'm not talking about getting intentionally dressed down, but I'm like, why is it that we, you know, to wear our Sunday best, Okay? Now, Mom, if you're watching this, you're guilty. You know you are. I mean, if you were going to the White House, would you wear jeans and a shirt like this? Well, how much more important is it when you go to God? It's a huge difference. I don't have to impress God because Jesus impressed God for me. But I do have to impress the president. Okay? I mean, I, have to, I, I, I do, I mean, at least the pressure to impress the president or an important person exists. But the good news of the gospel is that the pressure to impress God has been lifted. The pressure to be perfect and clean and at our best has been lifted. It's gone. 
I don't have to be my best before God. Even if I tried, I couldn't because Jesus was my best for me. Um, he comes to us, God does in the person of Jesus because we didn't deserve it. And at the cross, we see God lavishing his favor on us, not because we are clean, but because we are dirty. I mean, that's exactly what this passage does. If this doesn't point ahead to the cross, I don't know what passage does. I mean, it's so clearly bad. God gives grace. I am now righteous. Noah's, Noah. Noah's bad, evil, rebellious. God gives him grace. Now he's righteous. That's the gospel. That's what happened at the cross. And it's his love. It's his love. It's God's love that makes us want to walk with him. It's a relationship with him, not rules from him that invokes intimacy, that makes us want to be around him, that makes us want to walk with him. Remember what Charles Spurgeon said? I love this quote. He said, when I thought God was hard, I actually found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I beat my breast to think that I could have ever rebelled against one who loved me so much. It is God's love for us that invokes intimacy, that makes us want to walk with him. Or as the old hymnist William Cooper wrote, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, turns a slave into a child and duty into choice. Let's pray together.